The reading tonight is from Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The word of the Lord. My cousin messaged me on Facebook a few months ago. Her boyfriend and her were in town, and they'd been staying at her grandmother's, but they wanted to maybe not stay with her grandma all the time, give the old lady a break, you know, and would we be up for hosting them on the weekends for a month or so? I said, sure. We'd grown up together, and I'd heard vague things about her life going sideways on her. Drugs, divorce, a bad boyfriend. I thought we might be able to help or at least provide a space for her to help straighten herself out. So I met them in a bar one Sunday night, established strict rules about their stay, no drugs, no fighting, no staying longer than the weekend. My family thought that maybe this was a bad idea, but I thought we'd built a system to help them without exposing ourselves to any sort of risk. In the passage for today, we find Peter and the disciples on a boat in the middle of a storm. They have spent the day passing out an unimaginable abundance, turning a few loaves of bread and fish into enough food for thousands of people. But there's a dark undertow to the day. That morning, they received news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. It's a story we've all heard, the beheading of John the Baptist. But going back to it this week, I was struck with its remarkable brutality. So, Herod's brother's wife's daughter has danced well for him. And it's fair to assume that this dance was erotic. And in fact, it was so pleasing to Herod that in Mark's account, Herod tells the young girl, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And you might recognize that as a twisted-up echo of the book of Esther. Because in Esther, a a young Jewish girl is offered half a kingdom by a king after doing a 
erotic evening, and she asks that her people not be exterminated. In the Gospels, a young girl from a ruling family is offered half a kingdom, and she asks for the head of a Jewish man to be put on a plate and brought to her mother. I would not take this as a good sign. So, one Sunday afternoon, I stopped by our place to pick up something quick. I noticed that my cousin and her boyfriend slept a lot. I assumed that they were tired from trying to hustle a life together and that our home was some sort of refuge for them, a place where they could just sleep and no one would give them grief for it. And as I was walking out the door, my cousin came out of the room groggy, and she asked me if I knew of a good shelter nearby that they could stay at that night. And it felt like she was telling me probably a lie. But I remember thinking to myself, I will help you as much as I've agreed to help you, and no more. See, this is the key when you are helping someone without exposing yourself, clearly articulating how and when you will help and how and when you will not help. I told her that they shouldn't stay at Dorothy Day, that they should get out of downtown. She nodded, and I left. Turns out, she wasn't exactly telling the truth at all. Her grandmother hadn't kicked them out. But still, I felt something inside me harden. John's beheading is the undertow in the feeding of the 5,000. And it makes sense, then, that the text tells us that immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. I think he's frightened. I think Jesus is worried that they're coming for him next, that the beheading of his friend, the voice in the wilderness who proclaimed him as the Messiah, that putting John's head on a plate is merely the beginning of the violence, the beginning of a mass extermination. And this is the world that Peter is bound up in. It's a world where revolutionaries fail again and again. We know that there were many Jewish messiahs before Jesus that failed, and we know that there were many failed messiahs after him. One is particularly troubling. In the fifth century, a man known as Moses of Crete promised to lead the Jews through a parted sea back to Palestine, like a twisted echo of Exodus. So they followed him to a cliff overlooking the sea. At his command, the people threw themselves over the edge and into the water. We are told that many of them drowned or were destroyed on the rocks. This is Peter's world, one where you are so desperate to escape that you will throw yourself off a cliff or step off a boat into a raging sea. I was brought up being told that the story of Peter walking on the water was a story about having faith. But I don't think that's very true. I think that this is a story about desperation. I think that this is a story about being so desperate that you will step out of the strictures of empire and into a void of unknowing. Peter's story is driven by the dialectic of order and chaos. On one pole, we have water. 
which is a symbol for void, formlessness, darkness. On the third day of creation, God had to separate water from water to create land. Water is something that you must impose order on. And then on the other pole of this dialectic, we have a practical object of empire, a boat, a thing that is engineered, highly regulated, taxed, valued, a thing that it transports you across the void, it carries you above it. And Peter stands on this boat and he looks out into the darkness and he sees a ghost coming towards him. Perhaps he thinks that Herod has begun the extermination on land and the ghosts of his people are now walking out across the void, starting with yet another failed Messiah. He asks the ghost if it is Jesus, if he should step out, and the ghost says yes. I think Peter is so fed up, so tired, so exhausted, so desperate for a way out of that brutal world, the world dictated by the empire, that if he cannot find one, he might as well just drown himself. It's obviously stupid, stepping out of a boat in the middle of a storm. But I've been thinking about this in terms of God's mercy, the way that he is relentlessly, stupidly pursuing us with his grace, and, and how perhaps this is the spring of abundance, the endless jar of oil that we can share with others, and how we don't. Last month, I got a phone call about my cousin. Drug overdose, motel in Chicago. Her boyfriend woke up and she did not. Her funeral would be in 10 days. I've been thinking, what would have happened if we would have been a little less smart about their stay? It hadn't been that long since they'd stayed with us, only a few months, so what if our risk management system had been softer and stupider? What if we would have caved to their every grift, said, forget the clear articulation of how and when we will help you, and just helped? If we would have said, stay as long as you like, here, eat our food, take our bed, put their name on the title of our apartment, what if we would have taken an irreparable step out into, dark, into the darkness for them and with them? Would that have changed anything? I have no idea. But I think that I am a lot like the other disciples in the boat. I would have watched Peter. I'd be present, but I wouldn't have gotten out of the boat. I wouldn't have taken a step towards my own annihilation. I'm not sure if this is the gospel, to stupidly risk ourselves for each other. But it's clear to me that the gospel is in opposition to the comfort and security and safety of the empire. It is in opposition to retirement funds and home ownership and insurance policies and careers and the future itself. It's not easy to step out of the boat. I don't want to. I don't want to expose myself, and I probably won't. Most of us won't. We won't be desperate enough. We'll sit in the boat and watch someone else step out, respecting and fearing the gesture.
But here's the thing. Perhaps we will not have a choice. It feels like our world, like Peter's, approaches the brink of some dark, desperate future. Monolithic structures in the Arctic are falling into the sea. Devastating diseases rip across continents. We hear about ISIS, Israel, Hamas, Russia, Ukraine, Syria. Bomb strikes for months in Iraq. We hear about ocean acidification, habitat fragmentation. We hear that we are at the beginning of the sixth extinction event. And we hear that the financial markets are soaring to new heights. It feels like we are entering into what Marx calls the everlasting uncertainty and anguish of the bourgeois epoch, a time in which all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned. Jesus told Peter that he was the rock that his church would be founded upon. Let's hope that when the time comes, we will still remember how to step out of the boat.